All right, good morning, everyone. We are a little sporadic here in this class. Uh, has American Christianity failed? Uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We skipped last week. Uh, we're meeting today, obviously. We're going to skip next week as well and then be back on track, hopefully for the majority of the summer. So sorry for the jumping back and forth here, but it is, uh, it is about to come to a conclusion. So after this class, we'll see you uh, two weeks from today. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, jumping back into the Wolfmuller book, if we look at page 9, this has been our template for these first few sessions as we spend our time laying the foundation with Pastor Wolfmuller here leading us into the way he's defining revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. We took a look at revivalism. At the center of that is this idea of a, a personal decision to accept Christ. Um, importance stressed on the individual and on the act of the will in conversion. And then second to that, pietism. Uh, this being one of emphasis, so the Christian life is chiefly marked by a growth in good works as opposed to chiefly marked by dependence upon Christ and his righteousness from which good works flow. You can see that the emphasis is on the wrong syllable with pietism. And then mysticism we looked at last week too. This teaches that we can have direct, unmediated access to God. And that's maybe the crassest form. A more subtle form would be, whereas the ways in which God in the scriptures gives us access to him would be in the word. Whoever hears you, hears me, Jesus says. And in the sacraments. It's in connection with baptism that Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And of course, what else is Holy Communion but direct access to Christ? And so, if these are the means of grace, then what would, what would mysticism do? Well, it would either say, you don't need these at all, you don't need anything, or and or it would subtly replace the word and sacraments with another means and mode by which you come into contact with God. We talked very briefly last week, I think, about how music sometimes takes that role and what is sometimes called contemporary music, the thumping of drums, the smoke machines pouring out, the laser light shows coordinated, everything designed to evoke this emotional response with you and, and sort of give you the illusion that you're now in touch with God, whereas before you weren't, or when the pastor was preaching, you weren't. Okay, so mysticism, and then today into enthusiasm, which uh, has a technical meaning and definition here. Uh, it doesn't mean excitement, like we're saying excitement is bad, although you might think that if you step into some Lutheran churches. Uh, <laughs> that's not what we're saying here. So enthusiasm is defined by Wolfmuller as uh, enthusiasm teaches that the spiritual life happens inside of us. And if memory serves, he's going to give us a technical definition of that. If not, I'll, I'll try to add a little in that vein. Okay, so um, hmm, now that I look at it, it looks like, did we leave off on page 19? Is that right? So maybe we've got just a touch more um, on mysticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 18 or 19, somewhere in there for mysticism. Okay, so mysticism just... Yeah, mysticism teaches, top of uh, 18, let's just hit the hype spots. Mysticism teaches that we can have direct and immediate access with God. Um, he, says, he says a couple paragraphs down, mysticism is like a parasite that does not stand on its own. So he's grabbing hold of something. There's, yeah, he makes this point. There is Jewish and Islamic mysticism, just as there is Christian mysticism. Mysticism describes the basic characteristics of the Eastern religions and philosophies. There is even a kind of secular mysticism with people who want to be, quote, spiritual but not religious, end quote. We've, we've heard that 
before. Yeah, sure. Do we? Oh, let's get a microphone to you real quick. Would, would mysticism uh, lend itself to pantheism a little bit in the sense that you're one with nature? Uh, mm. I, I don't know. It's just a thought that came to my head because it's another bad mistake. Yeah, quite possibly, although I would think of... Yeah, I don't know. Quite possibly. I think I think key for us here, though, is to focus in on, on how the author is using the term in specific. So even if you were using like creation as such, you're still you're still looking for a mediated access to God. Yeah. If you were finding God like present in all things or something like that. Um, yeah, but it's it's worth considering. It's worth considering, so thank you for that insight. Let's keep that in the back of our minds as we go along here. Yeah, and then it, it, he says, he says uh, second paragraph from the bottom of 18, in its Christian forms, mysticism puts the emphasis on Christ in us. And again, notice that it's the emphasis. I mean, Christ is in us. Christ says the kingdom of God is within you. So we don't want to go too far um, such that we go into some sort of opposite error and say it's all about Christ outside of us and has nothing to do with Christ inside of us. Sometimes this gets sloganized in Lutheranism as extra nos outside of us. Um, that's true, but it's also there's also an intra nos inside of us uh, dynamic. We want to hold both of those biblical teachings in balance. But when the, uh, when the emphasis is on Christ in us, what gets, what gets lost? The external things that Christ does for us. So particularly his works and deeds, uh, with the centerpiece being his cross and resurrection. And then the external things being the word and sacraments, which these are, you know, in the storm and turmoil of our subjective experiences, they're like an anchor. It's, they stand outside of us, or they're like a lighthouse that you know is on the shore and not moving. And we can we can go to those things and grab hold of those as as truths. I, I know that um, it dawned on me some point early in my theological development that God wasn't synonymous with my emotions, and that was kind of a breakthrough. Um, as embarrassing as that is, but just this idea of like if I'm having a bad day, it doesn't mean that God is upset with me. How do you break out of that subjectivism that's so natural to us? And the word and the sacraments, those things that are external to us, break you outside of that subjectivism. And you can say, no, even, even if I'm shaken, even if I'm disturbed, even if my soul is in tumult within me, um, the Lord is our rock. The Lord is steadfast, immovable, and, uh, and grants us then that security outside of ourselves. So. So we want to be uh, a little careful, but I think, I think he's right that the emphasis is on Christ in us. Um, then just going a little further in that paragraph, he writes, this direct contact takes different forms, um, direct contact with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it is direct communication, a word from God. Other times it is God, quote-unquote, leading or, quote-unquote, prompting. Mostly it is in the impression that God is present on the inside, our soul is tuned to the sense, tuned to sense the divine presence. God is touching us or we are touching God. The impression, the experience of the internal and unmediated presence of God is the goal of American Christian worship. Yeah, not the goal of Christian worship, historically speaking, or Lutheran worship, but it is the goal of American Christian worship. So, uh, Pastor Wolfmuller makes note of these things. No doubt you've, you've heard this kind of language before, this, you know, God is leading me, God is prompting me, God is putting this on my heart, God, you know. Lutheranism generally shies away from that. We will acknowledge that any good impulse within us comes from the Holy Spirit, but there's a, there's a kind of problem that comes up with that it, just in terms of epistemology, that is the question of how you know how do I know if it's God prompting me or if it's me prompting me, <laughs> right? How do I make that distinction? 
Um, when people say, well, God laid this on my heart, how do you distinguish that from God laying on your heart that you want to eat at Fratello's for lunch? You know, it's, and, and if you're really consistent with that, it ends up being paralyzing because there's this sense of like, well, well there's a right path that God, has, that God has in mind for me. And if I don't discern precisely that right path, I'm going to be off and I'm going to miss out on his blessings. Take, so taking this idea of God putting this on my heart to its logical conclusion, you frankly end up where the prosperity gospel folks are. God has one set plan for your life, and if you derivate from that, um, he's still there for you, but you're going to miss out on blessings. And so that's what I mean by paralyzing. Then every little decision becomes a huge decision, and you're always trying to seek and discern God's will. And then you're also... You're also um, there's a, there's a kind of insecurity coupled with pride, as paradoxical as that sounds, because the insecurity is, is I don't really know, and, then, and, and thus I'm waiting for this, this feeling or emotion of God putting it on my heart, this sense, and then once I have that, the pride kicks in and nobody can tell me otherwise, because after all, God has laid this on my heart. You know, who are you to disagree with God? Maybe, maybe where the rubber has hit the most um, in regard, probably every pastor um, that's been in the ministry for a decade or more has had this or a similar experience. Um, I know I have. Uh, someone, someone is planning to divorce their spouse because they found a girlfriend and, uh, or a boyfriend, and they come and, and, and over the course of dialogue they have with you as a pastor, they say, well, this is what the Holy Spirit wants for me. He's laid this on my heart. Who are you to argue with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can see then where this, where this um, g- goes too far. Now, I, we don't want to, and it goes too far really fast. I mean, talk about a slippery slope. This is a very slippery slope. So sometimes the reaction we have to Lutherans is um, what I think is, is remember how we're, we always talk about the opposite of an error isn't the truth, it's just the opposite error. And this is where we're too ham-fisted, too simplistic with our understanding of sola scriptura. And so we just say, well, sola scriptura, that's the alternative. Um, and there's, what that does then is, is actually takes away any sense in which the Holy Spirit might be impelling you, you know. How could you tell if it's the Holy Spirit impelling you towards something, if God is actually laying this thing on your heart? Well, is it in accord with the Ten Commandments? <laughs> there's sort of like test case number one. Okay. Secondarily, is it in keeping with your vocation, with the station in life that God has put you? you know? I mean, he, God may lay it on my heart that, that America needs to change, and um, they need leadership that's going to take our nation in a different direction. And so, so I, you know, I, the Holy Spirit has put this on my heart. I checked that with the Ten Commandments and the Scriptures. Okay, that's true, that's true. So then I decided that God wants me to become a revolutionary and carry this out until I am enthroned in Washington, D.C. as a very gracious monarch. <laughs> okay, well, what's, what's the problem there? Well, that's contrary to my station in life. That's contrary to the place in which God has called me and placed me. So these are the kind of way, things that you want to use. And not so different than the dynamic at play when St. John writes, test the spirits. Um, that we, we test others in the same way as we test ourselves by the Word of God, by the Ten Commandments, by our vocational roles, um, by what's right and proper. And then I think we have no problem saying, you know, well, I mean, there's just this freedom. You do what's right, and then you give credit to the Holy Spirit, right? Rather than constantly saying, well, the Holy Spirit... I'm 100% sure he wants me to do X, Y, or Z. That's, that puts us on that real slippery slope. So I know it's, a, uh, it's kind of a fine distinction to make, um, as many distinctions in, in our faith are. But we want to, uh, we want to get this right. Otherwise, we, we go down a path. You know, it's interesting, too, and I'm sorry to do so much digression here on this point, but it's interesting, too, where you have this excuse me, this theology really take over of, um, well, what is God telling you to do? What is God putting on your heart? It paradoxically goes together with this, 
I, I, with this decision theology. So the irony of that is, here's this great big spiritual decision of which there could be no more, and you're supposedly able to make that decision on your own, but then any other decision, like you know what to have for lunch or something, you're incapable of making, and you're quivering and shaking. You see, that, that actually has the truth inverted. Um, in, in biblical theology, in Augustinian and Lutheran theology, you flip those two, and, and you, say, you say, the scriptures indicate, and Jesus even tells his, his disciples, uh, you did not choose me, I chose you. We're incapable of exercising our free will in those things that are above us, namely our conversion and this kind of thing, this God must do to us. And then we're free to do those things that God has put under us. And so the question isn't like, do I feel the Holy Spirit tickling my heart one way or the other? The question is, is this in keeping with God's word and commandments and my vocation? If so, then I'm free. And then what about questions of like, well, who do I marry or where do I go to school or what career do I have? That kind of thing. Frankly, God's left you free. Um, and, and we're scared of that freedom, but that's the truth. And we shouldn't be scared because it's opportunity to entrust ourselves to God. Um, to, simply, to simply know that our Heavenly Father has our back. He's left us free to choose this person or that person, this career or that career, or all the other things, this sandwich or that sandwich, or whatever the case may be in our daily lives. And He will back us up. He will work all things for the good of those who love Him. And so we entrust ourselves to Him, recognizing we have that freedom. So we don't have freedom in things above. We do have freedom in things below. Um, American Christianity inverts this and says you do have freedom in things above, you don't have freedom in things below. We can see how, how toxic that is when that gets turned upside down. All right, sorry for the long digression there. Pastor? Mysticism, yes. Uh, quick question for an example. You know, often we hear people say uh, they're offered, let's say, a job within the church, maybe a fellowship chairman uh, for two-year commitment, and they say, well, I'll, I'll pray about that. Mm -hmm. So do I interpret what you're saying? Uh, we shouldn't respond that way. We should respond if it's something uh, below the neck, so to speak, uh, that we're free to choose or not choose, and we're to make decisions based on our vocation and our capacity and time and availability to do mm -hmm. it. So, And I think that that's where the prayer comes in, Barry. I don't think we're praying that we would discern God's will, that God has one specific will oh. in mind, that I take this position or don't take this position. I'm praying to figure that out. Okay. That, that would be an improper prayer and not what we ought to pray for. Um, who can know the mind of God? Uh, but what we should pray for, rather, is that... Um, God would give us a sound mind and a right spirit, a good and clean conscience. We can see things clearly, that we can make the best decision in service to him and our neighbor, that we can be good stewards of the gifts that he's given us. Um, so maybe a, a really acute example of this is uh, in, in the context of a pastoral call. Uh, when a pastor is, is serving a congregation, he's received a divine call from the Holy Spirit through the people of that congregation. That's, this theology comes to us from the book of Acts, where Paul is talking to a group of pastors and he says, he says um, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So that's, that's the, the, the locus of our doctrine of the call is uh, the Holy Spirit working through the church calling pastors. Now, as a pastor, if you get a call from another congregation, and, and you'll hear pastors do all kinds of wacky things, you'll really get exposed to what their theology is and, and whether or not they're mystics without knowing it. Um, because many pastors will slip and use this language of, uh, like, I've got to discern the will of God. No, the will of God is already known. He said, it is permitted in my kingdom if you serve in this place or this place. That's the will of God. There's no more discerning the will of God. The, the question is that, is that God would, that, the, so, so how does a pastor pray for a call? Maybe that's the question. And you, you pray again for a sound mind, a clean conscience, a right heart, that you would see things clearly, that you would decide for the good of uh, the kingdom of God and your neighbor, that you would take stock of what your gifts, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and match those to the different places. And, and then you just entrust yourself to God and make a decision. And that, I don't bring that up to you know, be too uh, 
focused on the pastoral office, but rather just use that very acute case then as a template for all other cases. If, if God lays before you two options and you're truly free to do those biblically, um, pray for, that, for the kind of discernment we were just talking about, not to discern God's hidden will, but to discern um, what you think the best stewardship of your gifts would be, and then go forward in that way, trusting, trusting God. And even what others do for evil, God will work for our good. So, you know, as often as the case, we make a decision and it immediately appears terrible. <laughs> and that's simply there so that we can exercise faith and entrust ourselves to God. Okay, so that's, uh, that's mysticism, touching on that. Um, maybe over on 19, the great big words there in the middle of the page. There is a dark, desperate, and despairing side to mysticism. If you live by the experience, you will die by the experience. Trusting a secret part of your insides that says God is close also means trusting that secret part of your insides that says God is far away. Ooh, so true. So true. There are times when worship isn't moving, when the spirit isn't felt, there are times when you are not swept away, and these times are frightful. I'm going through a drought. I'm in the desert. I've lost my passion. I feel far from God. I've come down off the mountaintop, and I'm in the valley. The highs are very high, and the lows are frightfully low. Yeah, you, again, what's lacking there is any external anchor, any word or sacrament by which one can grasp hold of. So, of you know, a tragedy that's, that's kind of taken place, I don't even know if it's over the last few years, at least I've noticed it there, sort of these, these celebrity um, figures in the church, whether they're celebrity pastors or celebrity worship leaders, falling away from the faith. And, of course, these gain a lot of attention. And in passing, I've read a lot of the explanations um, that, that pastors and worship leaders have written, and most of them are right here. Most of them are, I don't feel it anymore. So you can see then, like, the dark, desperate, despairing side to mysticism in the way that Satan will use this. Like, he'll have you flying high and feeling God and everything's great, and then all of a sudden that goes away, and you can't come to any other conclusion except, well, I've lost that feeling, I've lost God, I've lost my faith, and off you go. So this is a, you know, a, a kind of teaching that has a, has a real strong pull ultimately toward apostasy when the feeling goes away. Or when you realize that the feeling is manufactured. I've had that opportunity to talk with a couple of uh, musicians who have played um, for worship services in, in contemporary American Christianity. And they've said, I walked away from the church precisely because it realized I was, it was a show and I was part of that. And the attention was on me, not Christ, on the music, not the word or sacraments. And once I realized that, um, I couldn't have anything to do with it anymore. So this is, um, yeah, this is a big deal, maybe especially for our, uh, our 40s and younger, something like that. All right. Yes, please. So since we do feel things um, and we feel, you know, the fluctuation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so we just look outside ourselves? Mm. Yeah, largely so. I think that that's a fair statement. There, there are a couple of things we could clarify. I hope I'm not being annoying strain too far from the text, but there are a couple of things we can clarify. Um, In the first place, all of this is not saying that emotions are unimportant. Emotions are great. They're gifts of God. We just don't want to let the emotions get out of bounds, go beyond their use. Emotions are not the way that in which we connect with God. Rather, they're the result of God connecting with us through His Word and Sacrament. And then we experience emotions sometimes, or frankly, sometimes we don't, and that's okay too. One of the most exhausting things about church can be if you're, if you're truly receiving God, then you're going to experience these emotions. And so there's this constant pressure to like have these emotions and have this experience. Can't you just go to church, receive the gifts of God, and feel emotionally absolutely flat? Is that okay? Absolutely that's okay. 
Can you even receive the gifts of God and feel tired or exhausted or sad? Absolutely, that's okay. Can you exult and rejoice and want to clap your hands and shout for joy and spread the word? Absolutely you can. And we do. Um, so what, what a proper biblical theology does is sets God outside your emotions and then allows your emotions to be what they are and to, and to be feel to, uh, excuse me, free to feel those emotions, experience those emotions, knowing that God is not identical to those emotions. Yeah. So a beautiful freeing thing. So, so we don't want to take away, we don't want to negate emotions. They're super important. God gave them to us. But we want to keep them in their proper bounds. You know, we do the same thing with reason and rationality. If we go too much with our reasonable, rational, scientific minds into the scriptures, we're going to ruin them. We're going to end up where 20th century higher criticism ended up, where you, can, where you don't frankly believe that Jesus said anything he's purported to have said. That's where rationalism gets you. So we want to stay, that doesn't mean we get rid of reason. We just put it subservient to the word of God. Um, we don't get rid of emotion. We just realize the proper role and place of emotion. The other thing we might talk about um, is, I think in popular parlance, if within the broader tent of Christianity, so to speak, mysticism tends to mean something more like ecstatic experience or something like that. Um, uh, maybe, maybe seeing visions or dreaming dreams or feeling a great inner peace or feeling the presence of God being really close to you or something like this. Um, you know, whatever that whole, that whole thing is. And it's, I think it's important to realize that we don't simply throw that baby out with the bathwater either. We don't say um, there's no role or place for any of that within Christendom. Again, we want to say, we want to see those things as rightly ordered and, um, and, and so that those things which may be effects of the word and sacraments of God don't rather replace the word and sacraments of God. I think that that's key. So again, the way that the author is using mysticism is unmediated access to God. We're not really talking about ecstatic experiences as such or any of the other um, kinds of like, different phenomena that Christians throughout the ages have experienced. Um, we're just really not even commenting on, on it at that point. And I want to clarify that because sometimes this gets treated in a ham-fisted way, in my opinion, within the Lutheran Church, where we just say mysticism bad. And people take that to mean um, anything outside of me reading my Bible bad. And that, that's distorting. That's not accurate. That's as inaccurate as saying your feelings don't have any role in your life, you know, or your because reason leads us, can lead us astray. Reason doesn't have any role in your life. And no. All of these things in their proper order and balance. That's really what we're going for in a thoroughly biblical and faithful Christianity. Okay, any, uh, any additional thoughts or clarifications? Or um, shall we just roll on a little bit? Let's do that then. Um, I, think, I think we've hit mysticism. Let's jump over to page 20 and do enthusiasm. And let's just start at the start. Where does spiritual action occur? What is the realm in which God acts? Well, all Christians would recognize the work of God in creation. After all, God created the universe and continues to hold it together. American Christianity locates God's gracious and saving activity inside of us. All spiritual activity occurs in the heart. American Christianity teaches that it is in my heart that God speaks. It is in my heart that the Lord gives gifts. It is with my heart that I make a decision for Christ. It is my heart that is charged with spiritual energy to motivate good works. It is with my heart that I know that God is close by. My heart is moved, changed, filled, assured, surrendered, and given over. God, um, according to American Christianity, is working on the inside. Now, as we're going to see um, Pastor Wolfmuller point out, this too is a matter of emphasis, like pietism. We're not saying that none of this is true at all, but we're saying when the emphasis gets put on the wrong syllable, it's distorting Christianity. 
Okay? And so that's the argument. It's not that these things don't have their place and their role to some extent. I mean, God works internally and works in our hearts, to be sure. But we can't say that to the exclusion of God's external works, right? In fact, if we do that, we've got a major distortion going on in, in our faith. So uh, the emphasis is wrong. Yeah, let's jump down to uh, the bottom of page 20, just the last sentence there. It assumes that if something is physical, then it has nothing at all to do with salvation. If it is outside of us, then it must be a work. If it is inside of us, then it is probably grace. If something is outside of me, then it must have nothing to do with my salvation. This is enthusiasm. So again, you could see the target of enthusiasm. You can see how enthusiasm and mysticism really go hand in hand because the target of enthusiasm is going to be ultimately the sacraments and the word that are external to us. Um, if it's outside of me, then it can't be spiritual. It can't be God. So you, you even get this misinterpretation that, that the word of the scriptures themselves that's, that's just, um, oh gosh, what's the, what's the distinction there that they say? That's just the letter. The spirit is what's going on inside of me. I mean, can you imagine, like, like just hear that, the, the audacity of that statement, the word of God, that's just letter. The spirit's what's alive inside of me. So there's a really crass form of this enthusiasm. Um, but then also, this is, this is really at the heart of the argument of, well, it's, it's just wa baptism is just water. It's just my act of obedience. That's all there is. It's superficial. It's external. Because what matters is what's going on in my heart. Um, same with the Lord's Supper. Because it's external, it can't, it can't be anything other than bread and wine. It can't, and the only important part of the Lord's Supper is my internal remembrance. You see how this works? Um, but nowhere do you find this kind of thing in Scripture. I mean, nowhere does Scripture say that, hey, everything that happens outside of your heart is, is carnal or fleshly, and everything that happens inside your heart is spiritual. Everything that happens outside of you is your work. Everything that happens inside of you is God's grace. I mean, you just never find this distinction biblically. So, um, so now you're seeing the problems with enthusiasm. Enthusiasm as, as a word, maybe it doesn't, Maybe he doesn't get to this. I don't know. I don't see it. But it really, the root of um, enthusiasm is theos. So it's entheosism. It's God within. That's the idea. And so if, so if God is within and the spiritual is within, then everything outside is inferior or superficial. Does that make sense? It's kind of a riff on Gnosticism, where the material is bad or inferior. Um, the internal is all that matters. Now, the problem is if you were to be logically consistent with this theology, you're going to end up denying the atonement and the cross because you're going to say external things don't matter. Well, the cross was external. Um, fleshly things don't matter. Well, then the incarnation doesn't matter. And again, if you're going to be real consistent with this kind of, if it's external to me, it doesn't matter, then you're going to go to the extreme form of the Word of God is just a dead letter. It's the Spirit that speaks within my heart. And now you can see that enthusiasm and mysticism are interrelated, intertwined. So um, it's not to say that God doesn't work inside of us. It's just He works inside of us by the means He's given, which are outside of us. You have, to have, you have to have the outside in order to have the inside. And if the inside doesn't align with the outside, then you entrust yourself to the outside, <laughs> if that makes sense. All right, um, so up at the top of 21, Wolf Mueller continues in the very bold bracketed print, enthusiasm teaches that the spiritual life happens inside of us. We normally use the word enthusiasm to mean we're really excited about something. That guy has a lot of enthusiasm for the Broncos. But enthusiasm is also a technical theological word and a very helpful one. 
Theological enthusiasm is the promotion of the internal testimony of quote-unquote God over the external testimony of the scriptures. The enthusiast sees all the action on the inside. He's got kind of a nice way of tying these all together in the next large printed words. Enthusiasm is creeping around in the background of revivalism, pietism, and mysticism. It is the internal tugging of the Holy Spirit on our heart that lets us know we need to walk up the aisle and receive Christ. That's revivalism. It is the internal voice of God that gives us direction in our daily living, pietism. It is the presence of God we feel in our heart that lets us know we are worshiping Him, mysticism. All of the gracious working of God is bottled up in our heart. And then here's, you can see it's a matter of emphasis. Now it is true that God works in our heart. That is not the problem. Enthusiasm fails because it denies that God works outside our heart. The enthusiast denies the external work of God, specifically his promised work in the Word. Okay, uh, remember, please interrupt me if you've got questions or comments, if you've got any observations that you, you've experienced that you'd like to make. Um, sure. I think we would say that sin comes from the heart, I think. Um, what, what would they, where would they put sin generated from um, because if their heart is pure mm. they, they mm. can't sit there and and they can't sit there and say I don't have a sin nature um. right yeah it's a good question Bob I don't know how, I don't know how a thoroughgoing enthusiast would answer it other than uh, other than that they would probably acknowledge you know I think your average American, Christian would acknowledge, yeah, I've got a sin nature within me that's distinct from the what I'm calling my heart, which is the new man within me. And insofar as that goes, I think that that would be a fair enough explanation. But you do bring up a good point that if the whole thing is interior, then we run the risk of losing sight that Christ is the one who says that out of the heart of man comes wickedness and deceit and lust and he goes down a long list in Mark 7 in that regard. Yeah, so so far from the human heart being this place that's, you know, um, fit for God, it's rather quite unfit for God. That's why Luther, in one of his favorite ways to preach around Christmas, is that just as when Christ came he was laid into a manger so uh, when Christ comes into us, he's laid into our hearts. He's laid in an unfit place. You know, just as, just as Christ was laid into a manger surrounded by animal dung, so he's laid into our hearts surrounded by the filth of our sins and sinfulness. And so it's a place unfit for God that he deigns to come anyway in order to cleanse us and show and enact his love for us. Um, it's quite a different take on it than my heart is worthy, you know, or in and of itself is worthy and, and well prepared and fit for God. Yeah. Yes, please, Barry. Um, I Just to kind of comment on where these people may be coming from with this excess, uh, and I think you said it well that, uh, uh, but um, the Holy Spirit is, is a deposit, a guarantor of our, uh, our justification and our. Uh, being a child of God, uh, and it works within us. It it prays for us, utters for us. It it does. You know, it's it's God's promise that He will give us a new heart, change our nature. Uh, Philippians saying, uh, "He who began a good work in us will change it." And I think you said it very well that that Holy Spirit uses these external means in order to accomplish that, as well as working in us. But if you, the Holy Spirit, I think is where is the root of where some of this comes from, at least from my perspective. Could you just comment? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the old way of speaking is preferable to our new way of speaking within Lutheranism. Um, although most of us sitting here in this room as Lutherans have heard this our whole life, we've heard means of grace. 
And um, what we mean by that are the words and the sacraments. These are the means by which God communicates his gracious and attitude toward us. You know, God can be as gracious as he wants up in heaven, but how am I going to know that, especially when my conscience becomes defiled because of my sins and I see the curse at work in my fellow man and in the world? And um, how am I supposed to know that God is gracious towards me? Well, he has to communicate that. How does he communicate that? Those are the means, namely through his word and his sacraments. He tells us that despite of all appearances, he loves us. Um, he wants us to trust him despite all appearances, and he promises that he will make all things right. Okay. Um, means of grace is the more recent term for that. If you go back to the 16th century and the way the Lutheran reformers talked about the means of grace, they actually refer to it as the means of the spirit. That's preferable, I think. Not only because grace is kind of an ambiguous concept and requires some fleshing out and some definition, but because it puts the emphasis in the right place, Barry, as you pointed out, the Holy Spirit uses the word and the sacraments in order to affect us. And so there's the, now you can see how the, how the external affects the internal because the Holy Spirit is creating a, a new heart within us, a clean heart within us, a right spirit within us, all of these ways the Bible speaks, precisely through these external means. The word proclaimed, the sacraments received, um, these are the means of the spirit. Okay, so anyway, Barry, that, um, you can see then that, that your thought is not at all far from uh, the source there. Okay, thank you for those, uh, thank you for those, those comments. Let's, let's look over on 22. Looks like, I, had a, I have to confess, I had just a little bit of trouble figuring out what precisely is the order or the organization, organizing principle <laughs> of the remainder of this, this chapter, other than we just kind of talk about a number of different paradigms and distinctions, which is fine, we'll do that. Um, but let's wrap up on... Uh, enthusiasm here, top of page 22, before we kind of shift gears into the pendulum of pride and despair. So if we, uh, if we look at that first full paragraph on page 22, Wolf Mueller writes, enthusiasm looks for God, for his word, for direction, for certainty, for truth, for comfort, for confidence, and for the spirit on the inside. Everything is in my heart. You know, of course, all Satan has to do is just like empty your heart or convince you that your heart is illusory and you've lost your faith. That's really the danger of enthusiasm. It's so, sh it's so um, I, said sh I started to say shallow. It is that, but it's not exactly what I meant. It's so fragile, so fragile. You know, and, and the thing we ought to pause and consider here too is when we're talking about American Christianity, we're critiquing these four points. And remember, we're not, we're not strictly speaking denomination bashing. There, there are denominations in which these things have become embodied and uh, up, they're like an official part of the theology and, and experience. And so we can be critical there to be sure. But Wolf Mueller's point and the point we want to keep in mind is that these things are so pervasive they've infiltrated everything. They've infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and non-denominational church, reformed church. They've infiltrated every church in one way, shape, or form. They've even infiltrated us. How can we not be affected? We're like fish swimming in this polluted tank. I mean, we're all affected by it, um, and that includes myself, no doubt about it. And so we're trying to sort through these things, see, see how each one of us and individually and corporately have been affected by this, and then and begin to steer ourselves toward a more objectively true, uh, objectively biblical Christianity and faith. So that's really the goal and exercise if we zoom all the way out and ask, you know, what are we, what are we on about here? That's what we're on about. Yeah, and then, and then he finally gets, so as we looked at that first full paragraph on 22 and we, we read the first line where everything's on the inside, everything is in my heart is the second line. Then he continues, one more point to make. This is the fourth and final mark of American Christianity. Enthusiasm fails to see that the Lord's gracious work is chiefly, now look at, the, look at the word of emphasis there, chiefly on the outside. Not exclusively on the outside, that would just be the opposite air, but chiefly on the outside. 
Okay. Well, there is at least an introductory uh, treatment of these four failures of American Christianity. Um, any thoughts or questions as we then transition into this idea of the pendulum of pride and despair? This is an important, um, an important principle, an important um, dynamic to have in mind. Any thoughts? All right, then let's uh, zip into pride and despair. I think we can just jump down to the bottom of 22, the large bracketed print. Legalism puts the law above the gospel by establishing requirements for salvation beyond repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. What happens when the gospel is not heard? When the halls of the church echo with commands instead of promises, threats instead of grace, instruction instead of mercy, there are only two options, pride or despair. And we might even say, well, where, where the halls of the church talk about command and promise or uh, threat and grace, instruction and mercy, um, where is the emphasis? Because if the emphasis is on the law, that's going to have this same kind of effect. Um, if the emphasis is on command, threat, instruction, um, then you're going to have the same effect here. It's going to drive toward the pendulum of either pride or despair. All right, first he defines what he means by pride. Okay, pride hears, this is top of 23, pride hears God's law and thinks, yeah, I've done that. I've kept that. I've thought that. I got after it and accomplished it, and God must be proud of me. Um, I think a, I think a, a slightly more humble version of this is, you might add on to the end of this statement, well, at least as good as anyone else. I'm, I'm above average, or at least average, right? That doesn't mitigate against the principle. And I think that this is, you know, that, that's the great temptation is we sort of make this, like, hey, I mean, in the crass form, hey, if anyone's leading the Christian life, it's me. Look at my resume. Right? That would be the crass form of this. A more subtle form would be like, well, I, I certainly don't get perfect, but I'm at least average, maybe even a little above average. You know, isn't that the joke? We all think we're above average drivers. I think so. And it would, it would certainly be the case here. We all think we're above average Christians. Can't mathematically be possible. All right, so that's um, pride. And then he points out the Pharisees as kind of the example of this in the scriptures, the archetype of this. Um, they you know, they don't, yeah, well, maybe it's worth reading. The, pr the proud are the Pharisees, those who think they have measured up to God's standard and done what God expected. The proud are always measuring. They measure their own lives and works, and really they can't help it. They measure the works of the people around them. The proud keep score. This is a necessary part of their theology. If God is marking our accomplishments, boy, this is an interesting thing. In our culture of victimization, hidden within victimization is actually pride. It's kind of a paradoxical thing because you think, if I'm the victim, how could I be proud? Precisely in the fact that you're keeping yourself the victim and keeping everyone else's debts and believing yourself to be entitled or this or the other thing. So there's this, there's this key to victimization, a culture of victimization. That's what I'm talking about. Not a true victim that seeks justice, to be clear, but this culture of victimization, you know, everybody's against me, I'm owed everything. What's at the root of that is pride, as you think about it. It's kind of a paradoxical thing, but it's true. So the proud keeps score. This is a necessary part of their theology. If God is marking our accomplishments, then we should mark them as well. The proud can talk about grace and mercy and the death of Jesus, but the thing that really drives their theology, and see, this is a telltale sign of kind of a proud theology, a Pharisaic theology, is the cross is somewhere back there, somewhere off to the side, right? If the cross is no longer the center, Jesus crucified for our forgiveness, God's pure grace is no longer the center. What's at the center is um, me and my obedient walk, and thank goodness Jesus is there for the few times I mess up. That's kind of the arrogance of this, uh, of this spirituality. And again, this can affect us all. So we want to be careful of this pride.
yeah, the proud can talk about grace and mercy and the death of Jesus, but the thing that really drives their theology is the cleanness of their life. Their works and efforts occupy their mind. They have managed somehow to make themselves pleasing to God. The flip side of pride is despair. If the Pharisees are a picture of the proud, then Judas is the picture of despair. Judas knows his failure and sin, but he has no hope. And there are many others than Judas. Of course, you could think of Saul, you could think of Cain, many other biblical figures. That, um, but Judas is a fine archetype to keep in mind. Judas knows his failure and his sin. Remember, he goes and throws the money back at the, at the priest. He recognizes his failure and sin. But he has no hope, no comfort. The despairing know that they have sinned. They know that they have broken God's law. Like the proud, the despairing are always measuring, but they know that they do not measure up. They try and they fail and try and fail and fail. And it seems like there is no hope, like God and the world are all against them. They are failures, doomed, lost, forsaken, and condemned. This is the pendulum of pride and despair, the swing of the sinful flesh dangling on the law. The Lutheran fathers knew about this danger. Now, I would say, too, um, that despair seems uh, superficially as though it would be a lack of pride, but it's not. Uh, again, pride is at the root of all of this um, because, because despair, the, what does pride look like in, the, in terms of despair? You have God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy, and you say, oh, no, no, I'm too great of a sinner for that, which is another way of saying, I refuse it. I'm above it. I'll either stand on my own two feet or I won't stand. I don't need your grace. I don't need your handout. Um, that's really at the, at the root of despair. Uh, so in a sense here, this is all pride, that which separates us from God. And then it takes on these two forms, a kind of self-righteous pride of the Pharisees. I'm pulling it off, or at least as good as anyone else. Or despair. I'm not pulling it off. I know it, but I'm not about to receive God's grace. That's humiliating. And so you can see then that these are manifestations of of an initial pride that separates man from God. Okay, well, pride and despair are super important because the law evokes these. The law brings these out. You can hardly hear the law without saying, have I done that or not? And if you kind of say, yeah, I have, then, you know, the devil's temptation is to push you right into self-righteousness. If you say, no, I haven't, the devil's temptation is to push you into despair. Like, that's how he tries to skewer us on the, on the, with the law in the way of pride or despair. And so we need to realize that there's a, a kind of spiritual warfare dynamic at play in all of this. The devil is, is trying to use the good things of God both his law and his gospel, but here we're looking at his law in particular. The devil tries to use these to our spiritual harm and detriment. All right, um, maybe to, yes, sir, please. Yeah, going back to the uh, pride and the keeping score uh, Mm. reference, Mm. uh, at least from my standpoint, uh, you know, that the verse that talks about uh, the books of life will be opened. Everything is written down right, what right. you've done. I mean, that, that, that cries out that there's a scorekeeping. And, you know, mm-hmm. I realize that's after our justification, yeah. I think. But, but if you could just comment oh, on that. That's a great point, Barry. Yeah, thank you. There, so, I mean, as, as we're going to see, like, we can't do our theology just in opposition to this. So, so if we're going to say, say a key part of American Christianity is keeping score. Hey, then, then, then our reaction to that, the theology we're going to build, is there's no scorekeeping whatsoever ever. Okay? But have we, have we now then built a biblical theology, or have we built a non-biblical reactionary theology? Very clearly, non-biblical reactionary. So what does that look like in, in maybe some extreme cases where you say there's no scorekeeping whatsoever? Okay? Well, I mean, in a very crass case, somebody r- steals from a church. Um, as, you know, they're the treasurer of the church, and they steal from the church, and then they say they're sorry. I guess you have to let them back as treasurer. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, a, a pastor commits adultery with, with one of the people that Christ has put him in charge of. Um, well, we're supposed to just forgive and forget. Nobody keeps score, right? No, that's not right. Um, 
what would be some other crass forms? Maybe even suggesting that temporal punishments ought not exist at all, if, as long, or temporal consequences ought not exist at all if there's just this confession and absolution on the vertical dimension with God that takes place. That would be a crass form of this. And then more um, other kinds of crass forms would be like, well, if there's no keeping score, then that means there's no maturation, there's no growth, there's no development as a Christian. All of that's false. Scripture indicates this in many, many places, that we're to mature in the wisdom and stature of Christ, that we're to grow in our Christian faith, etc. So what do we want to do? What do we want to do? We don't want to build this reactionary theology of, well, well, counting is bad, therefore all counting is out. No, we want to we build our theology biblically. And just as you very well did, Barry, we want to keep all counting outside of justification. We want to keep all counting outside of our primary relationship with God. My, my favorite paradigm for this is the paradigm our Lord gives us, and that is that God is our Father. Is, is any of my, you know, you know I've, I've got a son. If my, if my son, is there anything, is there any way that he could sin against me that would make me say, that's it, I'll never see you again. To hell with you, away for all eternity, I'll never leave. No, there's not a single thing. There's not a single thing. There's frankly not a single thing my son could do that I wouldn't undo if I could, even laying down my own life, right? That's my son. That's precisely how God looks at us. Now then, with that as the dominant mode and paradigm, um, we, can, we can draw that over to Christianity. That's how we ought to see our Heavenly Father. There's absolutely nothing we can do that he's going to say, well, that's it, you're gone. I've had enough of you. No. Now, does that therefore mean, because he's got this relationship, that he's not going to discipline us or chasten us? No, of course not. In fact, rather precisely because he loves us, he's going to discipline and chasten. Just because I won't disown my son for, you know, stealing my keys, grabbing my car, and driving it into the house, okay, just because I'm not going to disown him doesn't mean there's not going to be a chastisement, a discipline, so that that doesn't happen in the future. In fact, rather, it's precisely because I love him that that's going to take place. Another way to think about this, too, is just because I'll never disown my son and I love him so much I'd lay down my own life to make up for any misdeeds he's, he's done, um, does, does that mean that I'm not going to be disappointed in my son from time to time? No, I might be disappointed with him. You know. Not on the primary level. I'd never be disappointed to have him as my son, you see. But would I be disappointed that his actions aren't in keeping with his, his own character as my son or, or our own collective character as family? Right. That's the proper way to think of God then, um, keeping score or, you know, again, keeping score, we probably I'll just throw out as a phrase, but our actions do matter just in a penultimate sense, not in an ultimate sense, if that makes sense, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that this is a very helpful paradigm and way to think. Now, the scriptures also hold out promise of rewards for good works. And so the problem is if you've got this theology that just says, well, God doesn't keep count, well, yeah, he does. In fact, there's a really gracious and wonderful way in which he keeps count. He doesn't keep count of our sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but he does, in fact, keep track of our good works, even good works so small that we don't even realize that we're doing them. Whoever gives a cup of cold water to a little one of these in my name will by no means lose his reward. I mean, that isn't like saying, hey, handing out a cup of cold water gives you some special reward. That's saying something so small that you don't even recognize it, God does. God recognizes it, and it's not, so God does keep score. You won't lose your reward. I mean, that's exactly right. So, um, and even I mean, for two thousand years, even straight through the Lutheran tradition, there's this teaching that there is in fact a role of meriting rewards. Okay, in the same way that think about this. Think about this. Um, I don't ask my son to take out the trash. I don't ask him to take out the trash, but he sees it and does it. Now, do I have to give him anything? No, I'm not obligated to give him anything. So it's not merit like that, like, well, he did this, and so now he's got to present me with a bill, and I've got to pay him back. No, it's not like that. But it's the fact that as a father, I would see that, and that would so please me. I would say, I can't believe you just did that without me even asking. That's incredible. Let's have a popsicle. You know, like, that's the kind of thing. So... So this idea that we can so please the Father that he gives us temporal and eternal blessings and benefits, um, this is clearly biblical, clearly Lutheran. It's, it's everywhere. 
And we only run into a denial of this when we formed our theology over and against American Christianity as a reaction, rather than we've dug deep into the scriptures and developed a positive theology that sets us free from either error, you see. So um, again, Barry, I hope that that's maybe a little too wordy for you. Ooh, I've run us over time, I'm sorry. But, but that's, I think, the most helpful paradigm is think about it in terms of, of a father and his beloved son, his beloved daughter, and think of the dynamics in, in that regard, and everything will become much, much clearer. Um, I'm going to end the class, but feel free to stick around, and, and I'll entertain your, your question or comment in, in just a moment. The Lord be with you. Thank you, and we will see you in two weeks. Just talk.